Well, good morning. My name is Parker Johnson, and this is the midweek devotional uh, for uh, October the 7th, 2020. You know, I was thinking this morning as I went out front uh, early this morning to get some coffee, and there are a lot of people that deserve the Nobel Peace Prize, but I'm pretty sure at the top of that list is the person who invented not only the drip coffee maker, but the timer for a drip coffee maker, that you can press that button, and at a certain time the next morning, the coffee will come on. You think about how many diplomatic sessions have gone better because there was coffee in the drip coffee maker of those diplomats when they woke up. Praise God for good coffee. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for coffee, all kidding aside. It is a a great gift from you. Um, We thank you for your goodness to us. It is far greater than coffee, uh, for we have your love, and it has been lavished upon us uh, in Christ Jesus, that we who deserved hell and damnation, that instead we've been given life. Lord, may this day be a day in which we reflect deeply upon your gospel. Give us joy. Give us joy as we reflect on all that you've done for us, and may our worship of your name uh, be heartfelt. Uh, Lord, give us a fervent love for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want to read to you from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. He sprang up and began walking. Let's stop there. That's the end of verse 10. So what's going on and and where are we? Well, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. The first missionary journey uh, began back in Acts chapter uh, 13. When the Holy Spirit showed up into the worship service in Antioch and told the Antioch church to set apart for them Barnabas and Paul for a missionary journey. And so this is new land in which the gospel probably had not gone forth. There may have been those in the dispersion who had gone. But in many of these lands, there's not even a synagogue, which seems to be the case here in Lystra, considering that Paul and Barnabas are speaking to the crowds rather than in a synagogue. Uh, So it is likely that now that they are in Lystra, uh, an area of Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, um, that that people had never heard the good news of Jesus. And so we have Paul preaching. Uh, Barnabas would have been there right beside him, but it appears, and we'll get to why we think this now, uh, that Paul was the main speaker. uh, And here we have in verse 9 that it was indeed Paul speaking. Now, One of those people in the crowd was a man who could not use his feet. Now, we've looked at this in the midweek devotional uh, back with Peter when the Lord used him to heal a man who had been lame from birth. Well, this man had been crippled from birth as well and had never walked. He had been listening to Paul preach. Now, it's important to note that it seems as though Paul had been preaching or speaking for a while by this point. How do we know that? Well, as we see In verse 9, Paul, looking intently at him through the Spirit, seeing that he had faith to be made well, you know, someone who is in a pagan land with no access to the Word of God, 
And since there was no synagogue there, uh, he would have been unfamiliar with the Old Testament scriptures. He would have to learn a lot. There would have to have been many things that Paul would have had to address before he could get to the point where he could call the name of the Lord. I mean, think about that. He's coming from a pagan idea or mindset in which there are multiple gods. Uh, the way that gods relate to people is so different from how the one true God relates to people. He's got to probably talk about how God created the world and, uh, and then getting ultimately to Jesus and what he had done talking about sin and talking about how he took it uh, on the cross for us. So, so Paul had been speaking for a while, but at the, towards the end of his speech, we read in uh, verse 9 that Paul looked at him intently, or looking intently at him, uh, and he saw that he had faith to be made well. How in the world could Paul see that he had faith to be made well? Well, obviously it is a work of the Spirit here. Remember, apostles were a special category of servants of the Lord. It's an office that ended with the first century of Christ. After Christ, you don't see apostles replaced You know, as they begin to die out in Acts. You don't see the church scramble to replace them. You also don't see apostles laying hands on others uh, to become apostles. You actually see them laying on hands that they might be elders, they might be pastors, ministers, uh, shepherds. He looks at them and sees he has faith to be made well. There's a bit of a play on words here. Remember, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And one thing that Luke likes to do is to use the word saved in Greek, saved, to refer not only to salvation but also uh, to complete healing. Right? So he had faith be made well. The question here is what did it mean for him to be made well? This is saving faith. He had saving faith upon Christ as a uh, result of uh, the preaching of Paul, and ultimately that can only come through the Holy Spirit. We see that part over in Acts chapter 16 when Paul is preaching and speaking to Lydia. Uh, we see in Acts 16 verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is what happened here to this man. And Paul, through the Holy Spirit, sees that he has saving faith. And then what happens next is really exciting. He said in a loud voice. Okay, So he didn't just mumble. He put the credibility of God on the line. He was not afraid to go all in. He said in a loud voice. You know, when you say something in a loud voice and it doesn't happen, everybody's going to know that it didn't happen. But he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now, this command ultimately is not coming just from Paul, right? I mean, Paul in and of himself had no power to heal anybody. It comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really exciting. And he sprang up and began walking. Isn't it amazing that he didn't crawl first? You talk about uh, babies, and as we have Thomas and Lizzie, and you think about the period in which they, they begin to roll over. That's a big deal. We have Thomas rolling over one of his very first times, and he's just working so hard at it. And then a few months later, they'll begin to drag that back leg, and then, then they're crawling all over the place, scooting around. And we also have some of Thomas's, actually not some of, his very first steps. We have that on video. Uh, you know, it's a long process to learn how to walk. And here, this man who had never walked before, he sprang up, right, like a spring, coiled, ready to go, 
and began walking. He didn't have to learn how to walk. He, he didn't have to go through rehab or therapy. The muscles which had not been there before are there now. Uh, praise be to God. Okay, but, but we're going to see how there's a real contrast between the saving faith that this man had as contrasted with the faith or the lack of faith and the response of the crowd. So we pick back up in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, so we'll stop there a second. So when the crowd saw what Paul had done, so it's not just this man who is listening to Paul preach. Remember that. So as Paul speaks, some are going to respond in faith and some are not. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, which Paul and Barnabas would not have spoken, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Whoa. Whoa, whoa. What a response. What a contrasting response of the crowds as compared or contrasted with the man who was healed. So they begin to say in Lyconian, which Paul and Barnabas would not have spoken, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They identify Barnabas as Zeus. Okay, so Zeus was the chief god uh, in the Greek or Roman pantheon of, uh, of the gods. And Paul was Hermes. Why was he Hermes? Because Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And we see here that Luke tells us because he was the chief speaker, he was the one who was speaking for, um, well, in their eyes, right, speaking for the gods. They realized something supernatural had happened. They, they saw that this man had been healed, and they knew that something beyond the power of man had been displayed before their eyes. Now, a lot of times we say that, uh, you know, seeing is believing. And here's a great example that that is just not true. These folks had heard Paul speak and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They had heard him speak about the one true and living God. Then they saw a manifestation of that power of the gospel, and what was their response? They immediately think that their false gods had come to visit them. But there's a real tie-in here. Uh, as you hear the words uh, of verse 11b, let me read them again. And I want you to put your theological thinking cap on. And f what does this remind you of? Okay, so this is what they said. So listen. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. What does that make you think of? Does that jog your memory? Does that jog your mind of any other passages? Let me scoot over to Philippians chapter 2. When we read of Christ, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Did you hear that? Being born in the likeness of men. Wow. Okay, so here's the thing. What they thought and what actually happened were so different on so many different levels. 
so they would have thought that the their, their gods, Zeus and Hermes, had come down in the form or the likeness of man, but they wouldn't think that he that they would have taken to themselves a human nature, that they wouldn't have become man. Rather, it would be like an apparition, a, an appearance, right, of their false gods before their eyes, and I'm sure they fully expected them to just disappear at any moment in, back into the ether. They weren't going to stay. It was just a, a divine visit in their minds. Now contrast that to what has happened in the Incarnation. The Incarnation is a theological word. We speak of the birth of the second person of the Trinity into this world as a human baby. He took to himself, in Paul's words over in Philippians 2, in the likeness of men. But it is a completely different style of likeness. It is a very different manifestation or use of that word, right? Because Jesus was and is both fully God and fully man. Isn't that amazing? One, uh, let's see, who was it? I think it was an ancient church father that said, there sits upon the throne of heaven the dust of man. Isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, God Almighty, the Lord of angel armies, Yahweh, the great I Am, he took to himself a human nature. So he is 100% God and 100% man. And this is how the sacrifice would work. God had to assume that which had to be healed. Gregory of Nazanzus, I think was his name, a great Greek uh, patriarch of the faith, lived long time ago, 2nd, 3rd century, I think. He said that which, can't, that which has not been assumed cannot be healed. That which has not been assumed cannot be healed. So in order for our sins to be forgiven in order for there to be payment for the remission of sins god had to not not just take the appearance of man but he took to himself a human nature <laughs> isn't that amazing that's that's far beyond see what the these uh folks in lystra thought had happened they thought this was amazing that zeus and hermes had had appeared as men before them and done this great work when the reality is that the good news of Jesus says that it is far greater than that, that the one God of all of the universe who made all things and sustains all things by the word of his power, he came into this world and far from coming into this world as um, someone to be highly exalted on this earth, right? He came in humiliation, the crowds didn't follow him to honor him, right? In fact, in John 6, verse 66, I think, if I remember correctly, you have um, the crowds actually leaving him when, they, when Jesus doesn't do what they expect. Yeah, John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Okay, so the crowd responded differently than they were supposed to. But we're about to see it. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, and then I read this part already. Uh, so they actually tried to make sacrifices to them. They try the, the priests of Zeus. They want to get in on the deal. They hear what's going on, and they you know they're going to bring the oxen. And oxen were expensive, and and they're going to offer sacrifice with the crowds to Paul and Barnabas. Wow. 
Now, now here's the thing. They're going to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, who they think is... Uh, they think they are Paul, uh, Zeus, and Hermes. But think about how, how much the true gospel is even better that the one who would take the likeness of men, who would be born into this world, that he would not come to be sacrificed to, but he would come to be the sacrifice. Isn't that great news? Because the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of these oxen, they can't take away anybody's sins, according to Hebrews chapter 9. It took the very blood of the God-man, Jesus Verse 14 gives us the response of Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. Um, now, it's, it seems as though, and some of this is guesswork, it seems as though as, as the crowds are gibber, gibbering away in Lyconian, Paul and Barnabas, who don't understand that language, they're thinking, what in the world is going on? You can just kind of see the scene unfold in your mind, right? As the crowds respond, they're so excited. You know, Paul and Barnabas might have been excited at the beginning because they thought, hey, these people want to know Jesus too. Uh, but then when they start seeing the oxen and the priests of Zeus come out with their garlands, they figure out real quickly that this is not a correct response. What do they do? They, they tore their garments. Now, traditionally... Uh, men would have worn two long flowing robe-like garments. The inner one called the chiton, the inner tunic, uh, and then uh, on the outside, their outer robes. Uh, clothes were really expensive. I have a whole closet full of clothes. In fact, sometimes I have to take clothes off of hangers and throw it in the back of the closet just so I can have enough hangers to hang my other clothes on. I have so many clothes. Now, in those days, that wasn't the case, especially if you were journeying along your way and you could only take that which you could carry. Uh, it was likely that these were the only clothes that Paul and Barnabas had. You know, clothes were so valuable that you see at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Do you remember what they did with Jesus' clothes? That They did not tear them up. Instead, they cast lots so that one person could have something actually valuable and useful rather than tearing it up, something so valuable. So for them to tear their clothes, this is a, a big deal, a very expensive thing. So they tear their garments and picking up in the halfway of verse 14 and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generation, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Well, we'll just make a couple observations here. Uh, note that there's a real principle for us to learn from here. How easy would it have been and how sinful for Paul and Barnabas to say, Hey guys, look what we did. Right? I mean, something amazing had just happened. The crowds were exalting them. They were in a frenzy, excited and how easy it would have been for them to, even you know, saying, hey, we're, we're not Zeus and Hermes, but we are pretty cool folks. And you know, you've seen, seen us do some pretty amazing things, but that's not the attitude they take. In fact, they are cut to the quick. 
that people would know that it is not they who have done this, but it is, as verse 15 says, the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know, this is a good principle for us to follow too, right? Because here's the thing, so often we turn ourselves into little g gods of our own lives, you know, seeking our own agenda, our own kingdoms, our, our own glory. But instead, we are meant to be uh, those who point others to Jesus. I'm reading a great book with our youth director, JML, on uh, basically how to care better for souls, to be a better shepherd, to be a better pastor. And he was talking in his book yesterday uh, about how we as servants, and not just pastors, but, but just we as, as servants of Christ, we are like the groomsmen of the groom. What, what do I mean by that? Well, the bride, is, uh, the bride of Christ is the church, right? The groom is the one who marries the bride. Who is the groom? The groom is Jesus. We are like the groomsmen of Jesus. What, what is the role and duty of a groomsman? It is to point people to the groom himself, right? I mean, there's, there's great honor in being a groomsman, just like there's great honor in being used by God to, um, to extend his kingdom and being, bring people comfort and salvation. But the groomsmen are not the focus of the wedding. They're there as witnesses. And we are here as witnesses to point people to the groom, to point people to Jesus. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. They're not taking the, the glory for themselves. They're pointing people to Jesus and doing it very intently. What way in your life do you need to point others to Jesus today? All right, well, let's pick up um, in verse 15, or excuse me, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. All right, so these Jews in Antioch and Iconium, they had responded negatively to the gospel message. They have now figured out where Paul and Barnabas are, and they rush to Antioch, or excuse me, to Lystra. It's amazing how quickly the crowds change, right? I mean, they go from, uh, so verse uh, 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them, right? So you go from, no, no, do not sacrifice to us, to them being dragged out of the city because they were stoned. Because the crowds, the same crowds, that were going to sacrifice to them, now have stoned them. You know, what has happened to our master, to the groom, to our Savior? It will happen to us. It may look different to us. It may look different in each one of our situations, but you think about how this points to Christ. Right? Paul and Barnabas are, are uh, or excuse me, I guess it's just Paul here who is, who is dragged out and stoned, but Paul is stoned for speaking of the living God, he is dragged out of the city. How does this point us to Jesus? How does this remind us? I mean, Jesus was the sacrifice, right? Pete, no one was lining up to sacrifice to him, although he is the one that, if anybody deserves sacrifice, he is the living God. It was he. And yet he came to go out of the city to serve as the sacrifice. 
And it wasn't just that he was supposed to be dead. When they stuck that spear through him, he, he really was dead. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Do, do you see what has just happened? So Paul did not die, praise the Lord. He rose up, right? Just like, just like the crippled man sprang up, he rose up. And what did he do? He entered the city. He went back to Lystra. And it wasn't until the next day he went on to Derby. Uh, verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned. What have they done? Returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So what do they do? They, they go and minister to Derby. They turn around and they go back to the city that had just stoned him in Lystra. Then they go back to Antioch and Iconium, the cities from which the Jews had come to persuade the crowds to stone them. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They went back to these areas because the church needed them. The people needed them. They went and they strengthened the souls of the disciples, those who had come to faith. Um, and it's going to be a long time before anybody really gets back to them uh, to and, and continue to encourage them. Verse 23 is also important. You know, church government's a, a boring topic a lot of times to talk about, but it's so important. And here we have the model for how church government is supposed to work. What did they do? When they had appointed elders for them in every church. So more than one elder, so a plurality of elders. Elders would have the spiritual oversight of the church. So it's not just one, it's not just the chief pastor of the church, but it is elders, plural, who govern and shepherd the people together. Well, this concludes the uh, midweek devotional from today. What are our takeaways this morning? Well, uh, one, we were reminded of uh, the good news of Jesus, that he came. Uh, it didn't just appear to be man, but actually took up that which had to be healed. Um, two, uh, as we are servants of the Lord, like Paul and Barnabas, our job is not to point people to uh, ourselves, but instead point them to others. Uh, three, as we think about the impact, or excuse me, the persecution that Paul received uh, being stoned, there may come a time when we will be persecuted as well. We should expect persecution. There are different uh, godly response to persecution, responses to, to persecution depending on the context. We see plenty of times in which people fled persecution, and we see plenty of times in which they withstood and endured the persecution. But in all of those uh, responses, uh, we are called to maintain our witness for the Lord and to suffer the consequences, right? Because Christ has suffered the consequences of our sin, and now we are to remain faithful to Him. May the Lord bless you this day. O oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the witness of Paul and Barnabas and Lystra. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to bear witness to the living God, to the one true and living God, to be good groomsmen rather than seeking to be the groom himself. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.